Happy Friday, everybody. I'm coming with you with another disputed question. Now, this one's going to be a bit of an interesting one like last week. I'd I'd love to do something more systematic eventually, kind of go through um, a few uh, loci of, of doctrines, like do a, a series on Christology and go over all the Christological questions and then do a series on Doctrine of God or or something like that. But for now, I'm just doing interesting questions you know, just what I'm interested in, what I've been reading about, what I think you guys would be interested in. If you have any suggestions, just um, comment them. You can DM me on Twitter, whatever works. I love to get suggestions just to see how I can best um, help you with whatever you're wondering about recently. So this week is going to be on the... Um, not the perpetual virginity, I already did that. Uh, but it's going to be on the sanctification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So whether the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, was sinful, that's basically the state of the question. And we're going to get into the the intricate details about how different schools of thought are going to are gonna solve this question within the Roman Church, well, at least pre-1854. Uh, 1853-1854 Roman Church when the definition on the Immaculate Conception came out. But we're going to get into all that, but for now, let's just get right into it. I don't have much of a historical introduction to this question. So, whether the Blessed Virgin Mary was sinful? It seems not, for it says in Job, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. So, in order for the Blessed Virgin Mary to bring the clean thing, that is, Christ, she could not be unclean. So, second, further, Wisdom 1-4 states, For into a malicious soul wisdom shall not enter, nor dwell in the body that is subject unto sin. So, Christ is the wisdom, and he is the word. So, he will not dwell in the body subject to sin, that is, the, typologically going to be the Blessed Virgin Mary, so she is not subject to sin. Further, St. Augustine teaches, In the matter of sin, it is my wish to exclude absolutely all questions concerned the Holy Virgin Mary, on account of the honor due to Christ. For since she conceived and brought forth him who most certainly was guilty of no sin, we know that an abundance of grace was given her, that she might in every way be the conqueror of sin. So now getting into the respondeo. So the first thing we have to note and discuss, this is probably up front in all of your minds, is that this is different than the Romish conception of the Immaculate Conception, the Romish uh, infallible doctrine proclaimed in the 19th century. But rather, the Immaculate Conception is a species of an entire group of doctrines and different takes on what's called the sanctification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So was she sanctified and cleansed from all sin? Some will, like the Romish doctrine, say that it was a pre-application of Christ's Christ's merit before uh, her conception where she was not set free from uh, the uh, original sin, but she was kept from even uh, bringing forth original sin at all. 
And then there's another group which is going to say that after her confe- after her conception or sometime while she was in the womb of some sort, she was set free from sin, both original and actual. Well, it wouldn't be actual because she was a fetus, but any sin original. And then there's another group which is going to say at the Annunciation that she was set free from sin. I'm not going to precisely define uh, when and the specific mechanics of how uh, she was set free from original sin, but what I will say is I, it is I am denying the Romish doctrine that she never brought upon herself any uh, stain of original sin. So actually this is going to be the same take that St. Thomas Aquinas famously brings forward in the Summa Theologica and then on his commentary on the Ave, which was written in his later life. So what I will be arguing is that the Blessed Virgin Mary, at some time in her life, was cleansed from the stain of sin so that her body was prepared to bear the Savior. The timing of this is different depending on which pre-modern theologian is asked. Some say conception, others say in the womb, and others at the time of the Annunciation. Now, as St. Thomas writes in his commentary on the Ave, Christ excelled the Blessed Virgin Mary in this, that he was conceived and born without original sin, while the Blessed Virgin was conceived in original sin, but was not born in it. So, the doctrine that's going, the specific definition that I favor the most, although I'm not dogmatic about which definition of the sanctification of the Blessed Virgin Mary that I'm going to put forward, is that she was conceived in original sin, and then was subsequently, whether it's instantaneously after her conception, or whether it's later in the fetal development process, or before birth, or however it might have been, that she was at some point before birth and after conception, cleansed from that original sin that she did have. So there's a clear distinction between what I'm saying and the Romish doctrine. So first, it must be admitted that nothing of this is explicitly treated in Scripture. Even St. Thomas will admit this, saying, Nothing is handed down in the canonical scriptures concerning the sanctification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as to her being sanctified in the womb. Indeed, they do not even mention her birth. So St. Thomas is going to, and I will admit that this is not implicitly, I mean explicitly treated in scripture, but can be brought about by deduction and is implicit in scripture. So therefore, we must argue for this doctrine in three ways. First, from implicit statements in Scripture, second, from reason, and third, from fittingness. So first, let's take a look at the scriptural arguments. So the first argument is found in the words of the angelic salutation, Ave Maria Gratia Plena. There is a great deal of debate over this verse. Some believe it to be in reference to the sanctification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, in reference to a state of full full sanctification, that is, grace, that's what it means when she's gratia plena. Others argue that it is in reference to the favor bestowed upon Our Lady of being the mother of our Lord. The former is likely in that it is in the present tense favoring a past in the perfect media. Let me restart that. The former is more likely in that it is in the perfect tense favoring a past reading. So it is a perfect verb, which possibly could, since perfect can often be taken uh, depending on contextual clues and various grammatical uh, clues, it can be taken in a past sense for a completed action, and it sometimes is used for a 
for a present reading or even for a future reading in some it depending on the the grammar you look at you can get the uh the different ways that the perfect tense is used but more likely than not this is in reference to a past action so it's not referencing to the future blessedness that she will have in being the mother of god so the fathers are divide, divided on the explanation of the reference. So Latin fathers, such as Augustine and Ambrose, support the idea that this is talking about her giving being the mother of God. Others, such as Origen and Pseudo-Gregory, support my reading in that, in that it is referencing the past action of being blessed in sanctification. But this is very important to note because notice the difference between Ambrose and Augustine on one side and then Origen and Pseudo-Gregory on the other side. One side doesn't read Greek. The other side does read Greek. So the other side are native Greek speakers or learned it in, in grammar school. I'm not sure about Origen when he learned it, but I'm assuming he, he grew up with it or started learning it very young. So they're going to understand the syntax of this passage and the grammar of this passage much better than we are going to be able to understand it. So further, the Proto-Evangelium says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So notice that even in English translations from Hebrew, not just uh, Jerome's Vulgate Old Testament, in the Proto-Evangelium, there's enmity between thee and the woman, which is between the serpent, typologically Satan, and the woman, typologically the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there would not be enmity between Our Lady and the serpent if she was under his dominion. You can't have enmity to, between two that are on the same side, especially when the reference is clearly referring to uh, referring to being against each other on the sides of, of redemption. So there are typological arguments that are also used. So historically, fathers have pointed to the Canticle of Canticles, such as Song of Songs 4-7, Thou art all fair, O my love, and there is no spot in thee. So with this very uh, flowery language that's being used in the canticles to refer to the purity of the bride, uh, that typologically can refer, to, it refers to the church clearly, but it also refers to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that is a typological argument in that it has a dual application to it. It has the literal sense, and then it also has the allegorical sense, and those two must not be separated. So further, there is the Eve typology. So there's an explicit comparison made very commonly by the fathers, starting as soon as Irenaeus and St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus and St. Justin Martyr, uh, between Eve and the new Eve, which is the Blessed Virgin Mary. So Irenaeus writes, In accordance with this design, Mary the Virgin is found obedient, saying, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, let it be unto me according to thy word. But Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when as yet was a virgin. And even she, having indeed a husband, Adam, but being nevertheless as yet a virgin, for in paradise they were both naked, and were not ashamed, inasmuch as they, having been created a short time previously, had no understanding of the procreation of children. Having become disobedient, was made the cause of death, both to herself and to the entire human race, 
So also did Mary, having a man betrothed to her, and being nevertheless a virgin, by yielding obedience, become the cause of salvation, both to herself and to the whole human race. And on this account, does the law term a woman betrothed to a man, the wife of him who had betrothed her, although she was not yet a virgin? Thus indicating the back reference from Mary to Eve, because what is joined together could not otherwise be put asunder. And then he goes on making these various comparisons between the Blessed Virgin Mary being the new Eve and then the old Eve. So typologically, in the, uh, in the one having the fall and the other having the redemption, it's more clean, uh, clean cut when it comes to having the Blessed Virgin Mary be free from original sin because the old Eve was free from original sin. So these are typological arguments, and then you're going to get uh, even St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, I believe, in uh, Prima Pars. Uh, in the beginning, when he talks about the Quadrica, he's going to say that typological arguments are not for the establishment of doctrine, but they are supporting uh, the, the consensus which the Church has reached, and then also certain uh, implicit arguments. So the, so the type of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, was something which is laden in gold, it was pure, it was holy, and it was undefiled. In the same way, Our Lady housed uh, God himself as the new tabernacle, and was also holy, pure, laden in gold, undefiled. So now let's get into the arguments from reason. So this is from St. Thomas. So God so prepares and endows those whom he chooses for some particular office, that they are rendered capable of fulfilling it. So God prepares those he chooses, for example, in the ministry or in various other offices. He gives them grace that they may fulfill it. Now the Blessed Virgin was chosen by God to be his mother. Therefore there can be no doubt that God, by his grace, made her worthy of that office according to the word spoken by the angel. And this is, Thou hast found grace with God. But she would not have been worthy to be the mother of God if she had ever sinned. First, because the honor of the parents reflect on the children. Secondly, because of the singular affinity between her and Christ who took flesh from her. As it is written, What concord hath Christ with Belial? Thirdly, because of the singular manner in which the Son of God, who is the divine wisdom, dwelt in her, not only in her soul, but in her womb. As it is written, wisdom will not enter into a malicious soul nor dwell in a body subject to sin. So the argument that St. Thomas is making here is that there are various offices that Christians are called to and that God gives grace to prepare us for those offices. Now the Blessed Virgin Mary was called to the office of being the mother of God and it would not have been reasonable or fitting that she be not given the grace of uh, of purification because of the very nature of being a parent and how a parent relates to a child a a sinful child a sinless child cannot have a sinful mother because as it was as it was said the mother in the likeness of the children so further in the book of job when it refers to not a clean not a, a clean thing coming out of an unclean thing so this is interesting because Mary gave Christ his flesh. Christ was incorruptible, therefore Mary would need to be incorruptible at the time of the conception too. So 
who gives the flesh to a child? Who gives them their human nature? It couldn't be the Holy Spirit who had by himself given Christ the human nature, because then he wouldn't be the true son of Mary and wouldn't be a true man. That would be some Gnostic weirdness. So the flesh must be derived from the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, how can a sinless man receive sinful flesh? Well, one could say the sinful and corruptible flesh was purified. The problem with this is then Christ would need to have been given a certain amount of grace to be redeemed from sin, which renders him not a redeemer at all. Now, what some are going to say is, well, Christ's, uh, Christ's grandma, St. Anne, or uh, Joachim, they would need to have been cleansed from sin too if you're going to make this argument about the Blessed Virgin Mary. But this misunderstands what we're saying with the doctrine. Because what we're not saying is we're not saying that uh, there was a uh, there was a similar uh, conception with Christ. There was the exact same conception with Christ and Mary, because Christ he was he didn't need to be kept free from sin. He didn't need to be redeemed or purified from sin. But the Blessed Virgin Mary needed grace to be purified from that original sin which she got from her parents. So then further, wisdom 1.4, for into a malicious soul wisdom shall not enter nor dwell into the body that is subject unto sin. And that was already referred to. Now, the arguments from fittingness, which aren't clear, aren't uh, by themselves convincing, but they may bolster an argument. They cannot themselves be used to uh, prove it a dogmatic statement. So, moreover, it is to be observed that it was granted by way of privilege to others to be sanctified in the womb, for instance, Jeremiah, and then also the story of John the Baptist. So, other saints of great enmity and great sanctity were sanctified in the womb. So, we have a, um, this isn't something that we're just pulling out of thin air that's never happened before, but we see other saints which are cleansed from sin, even from the womb. So, it also would be fitting and it would be reasonable to say that the Blessed Virgin Mary was sanctified in the womb, too. This isn't something completely out of the ordinary and out of left field that we're saying that somebody's being sanctified in the womb because it has happened before. So, another argument is going to come from uh, St. Dionysius, well, Pseudo Dionysius. So, Pseudo Dionysius, his, um, his theology of participation. And his theology, his uh, his metaphysics when it comes to holiness. So those that are nearer to God are the ones who are holier. So the angels that are, uh, so you have the ranks of angels in Dionysius. So the rank of angels that's closest to God are the purest ones. And as you get further, they get uh, less eminent. And it's the same way he in the when he writes in the ecclesiastical hierarchy with the church. So, now, apply this to the Blessed Virgin Mary. They participated in one another in the womb. She, he was inside of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He was, she was the closest uh, creature ever to be near God. Nobody before and nobody will ever have God in their womb. So, this, this supports the contention and it is fitting according to the principle of Dionysius that the Blessed Virgin Mary being the closest to 
uh, to God that she is going to also be the most sanctified. Besides, obviously, the human nature taken up, up into the Lagos is going to be more sanctified. So now this, now I have something to say from Father uh, Francis J. Hall. He makes a really good comment on this question when it comes to uh, the seeming lack of biblical support on this. So he says, the mother of Jesus Christ was a virgin mother, and her virginity has been regarded by pious minds, not only as the divinely appointed sign of the taking of our nature by the eternal Son, but also as a suitable symbol of her own sanctification for such a sacred function and pleasure. The announcement to her of the part which we shall, was to fulfill was attained by witness to the fact that she was endued with grace. Governed by a deep spiritual instinct, the Christ is the church has ever abhorred the thought that the Holy One should have been born of a sinful mother. So this is, uh, wait, he, he continues, it has therefore been held that Catholic, with Catholic consent that somehow and before the conception of her divine son took place, she was by virtue of his merits purified from sin. This is not susceptible of formal proof but it is a matter of spiritual perception of the fittingness of things, a perception so general as to have all of the practical value of demonstration. So what Hall is arguing here is an argument from what's called the sensus fidelium. So the common body of the faithful, the Catholic Church, in their sense of the faith, has come to a certain consensus on something from its fittingness. So the very fact that the spiritual instinct of the church has abhorred the thought that the mother of God should be sinful is in, in itself an argument because of the way in which the Holy Spirit works within the church, illumining it and bringing her into all truth. So even with it being just uh, susceptible to implicit proofs from scripture and typological proofs and proofs from fittingness, the argument of the census fidelium is proof in itself. So forth from the dogmatic teaching of the church. So the Council of Ephesus states, this was the sentiment of the fathers. Therefore they ventured to call the Holy Virgin the Mother of God, not as if the nature of the word or his divinity had its beginning from the Holy Virgin, but because of her was born that holy body with a rational soul, to which the word was personally united is said to be born according to the flesh. So notice this language of referring to Our Lady as the Holy Virgin, or often you'll get the Blessed Virgin, or you'll get all of these titles of sanctity placed on the Blessed Virgin Mary. And over time, in subsequent councils, because this is only the Council of Ephesus, the Third Ecumenical Council, over time you get her being referred to as the Pure Virgin, the All-Holy Virgin, and various other titles clearly pointing to her sanctification from the ecumenical councils. Although they don't give a specific de definition of that sanctification, which isn't a worry for me because that's the position that I'm in. So fifth, from the fathers. So the fathers, generally, they describe her as pure and immaculate and undefiled and holy and all-holy. And this is extremely common among the fathers. And you'll get snippets of statements from the fathers referring to the fact that she was pure, holy, freed from, from sin, and, and certain things like that, showing that they believed in some capacity of her sanctification. 
So then sixth, we can argue from Christ's honor for his mother as a theological argument, as a deduction from a certain theological principle. So it is commanded of the law that one should honor your father and mother, and Christ fulfilled this commandment perfectly. And sanctifying his mother is a is one of the highest forms of honor that he could bestow upon her. So it's fitting that Christ would bestow the honor of sanctification on his mother because he honored her as no other son could or did. Okay, that is all that I have right now for the respondeo. So let's get into the objections. So the first objection is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Blessed Virgin Mary is contained under all, therefore she has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's two ways we can go about it. First, we can um, we can argue against the statement that all means all. As, as Reformed, you should know that all doesn't necessarily mean all, and that there are usually exceptions to this. Such as in this example, our Lord is an exception to this. If you want to take all means all, all people strictly, then you wouldn't be able to accept our Lord. So further, Mary is still implicated under this unless one affirms a strict definition of the Immaculate Conception. So what what I would affirm is that she was under original sin, and then subsequently she was sanctified from that. So she could still fit under this verse in Romans 3. So second, it would make Christ's salvation unnecessary. So to the contrary, Christ is still her Savior in that he sanctifies her. There is still grace which is necessary bought by the, the incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So third, some may argue that it is nowhere explicitly spoken of in Scripture. So, so this comes back to the way in which we do theology. So, so in fact, um, there are implicit arguments for this, typological arguments for this, and uh, arguments from fittingness, arguments from reason, the necessity of a of a sinless mother for a sinless child, and and the like are themselves arguments. Something does not need to be explicitly spoken of in Scripture in order for it to be a. A, a doctrine. For example, look at the practice of the Holy Eucharist. We do not have uh, an example, an explicit example, anywhere in Scripture of of women partaking in the sacrament. But we do give women the sacrament because it is implied by consequence from other statements of Scripture. And, and it's the same way with many other doctrines. Look at, for example, the doctrine of dithelitism. Dithelitism is the doctrine that Christ has a divine and a human will. Scripture does not explicitly treat this question at all. It's nowhere near to treating this question after an explicit manner. So, um, so we take the implicit statements of Scripture and theological reasoning and implication, and we, we go from there. Or, 
the example of the processions within the Blessed Trinity. The processions within the Blessed Trinity are not explicitly spoken of in Scripture, but are implicit from the temporal, what's called the temporal missions of each one of the persons. The Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Therefore, we can say that the Son's begotten of the Father before all worlds, and that the Spirit proceedeth from the Father and the Son. So, number four. In this case, every ancestor of Mary would have to be immaculately conceived. So this is untrue. To immacul the immaculate nature of Mary and Christ were garnered in different ways. Our Lady was still purified from the original sin that she was that she got from her, uh, Anna and Joachim, where Christ did not need purification from sins because if he needed purifications from sin, then he wouldn't be the Savior. So fifth in the Magnificat, she refers to herself. I mean, she refers to God, her Savior. So this is solved by the previous answers. God still saves her, but after the manner of purifying her and cleansing her from sin, not after the manner of uh, an ordinary mode of salvation. Okay, that is all I have for you. Um, look at the link tree below in the description. Uh, I have podcasts now, so if you don't want to keep coming onto YouTube to listen to me, I will be uploading the audio files from that into into my podcast and then the blog obviously i still release articles every monday and every wednesday patreon be a patron i'll get you some really good stuff for that and um twitter facebook facebook group follow me everywhere and anywhere and you you usually can you get hold of me pretty easily if you want to ask questions. A lot of people will ask me questions about various things that don't garner an article or a video. So I just send them a quick response, or if they need resources or anything like that, I'm always open to help in any way I can. So you all have a great rest of your Friday. God bless.